0: Friends, before we begin, let me mention that Tracks for the Journey is available in a book series. I've revised and expanded each podcast as an essay for you to enjoy. Search on Amazon with my name and the Tracks for the Journey title. There you'll find volumes 1, 2, or 3 available in paperback or Kindle edition. Or you can go to my website for a direct link to find these and other resources. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Tracks for the Journey, a podcast dedicated to your well-being. I'm Larry Payne, your host. I'll be exploring helps for your healthy growth through progressive Christian theology, psychology, science, and history. In this episode, let's travel down the trail together and let's discuss the epidemic of suicide and a hair-raising experience I went through several years ago. In this first segment, Let's explore a perspective on a very dark subject, suicide. It may be difficult for some of you to explore this topic because of its deeply personal nature. But today I'd like to look at the subjects of theology and psychology as they impact this vital part of American life and health I was sitting in a meeting when a coworker burst into the room. Her voice was nearly a wail, filled with anguish. Brandon just shot himself. My coworkers and I reacted with utter shock, bolting from our chairs. She continued in tears. Melissa found him. He's dead. The blow of suicide hit like a prizefighter's punch. That day became one of the darkest any of us would ever experience. The reality of suicide in American culture scars many families. In 2019, more than 1,300,000 people tried to end their lives in America. Almost 50,000 succeeded. White men make up 70% of those who died. What are we to say about this tenth leading cause of death in the United States? Let me first speak to the theology of suicide. In the ancient Roman world, suicide was accepted and practiced by many for reasons of defending their honor. The Church Fathers of the 4th century forward repudiated this perspective and condemned suicide as a mortal sin. The traditional reasons go to the sixth commandment from the Old Testament, You shall not murder. All human life has value, and no innocent life should be taken. Therefore, the one who suicides is a murderer, in the view of those centuries ago. For centuries, the Catholic Church taught that the last rites should be withheld from those who suicide, condemning them to an agonizing afterlife. Protestants agreed— preaching that this was an act of Satan's influence and leading to damnation, in the 16th century, leaders actually mutilated the bodies as a warning to others. In the early 18th century and onward, secular philosophers began to hold a different view, and suicide for honor actually returned to the mainstream in Western societies for a period of time. As we stand in the 21st century now, Ethical permissions for suicide are made from a freedom of personal choice perspective or as a rational choice when terminal illness is present. Resisting such ideas, however, the Catholic Church in a 1980 statement about euthanasia declared again that suicide was a sin against the sovereign and loving God. I believe it's wiser to operate under a different perspective in this 21st century I say that because of the findings of psychological science, which has given us a better understanding of mental conditions than the pre-scientific world held. We know now that 90% of suicides are related to a diagnosable mental disorder or substance abuse disorder. This does not mean that everyone with some kind of mental disorder will try to kill themselves. No, not at all but it does say that suicide is an action taken when cognitive processes are not operating normally. There is a profound depth of emotional pain and a sense of being overwhelmed with despair, shame, pain, or confusion. Psychologist David Jobs says that hopelessness is the most common factor in self-harm. A person intent on self-harm seems mildly delusional, caught in thoughts that distort the situation and their own agency. Many of those who survive suicide attempts give anecdotals to support to how irrational their thoughts had become, explaining they see life differently after the attempt. I believe this data from the world of psychology changes the theological perspective as well. With the basic idea that suicide is frequently an irrational act during a time of cognitive negativity, we can understand suicide is not a sin committed by a morally culpable person. Certainly, no theological system would hold that such a person, deprived of fully rational moral and spiritual capacities, should be condemned. Just as theology holds that God gives grace for children and the intellectually disabled, so the same can be said for those who are gripped by the thoughts of self-harm. It seems to me that the essential love and goodness of God should be the prevailing principle with all spiritual considerations of the suicide victim. From this perspective, we can develop the response that I believe is best. Instead of judging, shaming, or vilifying the suicidal as guilty of sin, we should act with support and wisdom. When a suicide attempt is survived, we should rush the support proven to help. Psychologist Jobes points to the value of giving empathetic emotional support, addressing the perceived issues of the person, and offering new perspectives of meaning to support their continued life. We must care for the attemptee, as never before, to walk with them to a place of renewed hope and energy. In the case of those grieving the death of a loved one by suicide, the reassurance of God's grace and mercy is very important. No human action, however shocking, can change the unconditional love and mercy that God extends to their loved one, we must reject some of the cultural stereotypes and theological distortions that increase the pain of grief. Offering compassionate presence is essential when the be- bereaved are coping with a death by suicide. Jesus promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's the promise we can claim for one who has died for those who have survived an attempt, and for those who grieve. A few days after the news of this suicide shocked us, my co-workers and I sat holding hands in the funeral service. We had asked many questions, grieved a great loss, and reached out to help others who were struggling with this aftermath. Wise words from a minister about the amazing grace of God offered the solace we needed for that day. I want us to think that yesterday, across America, 3,500 people tried to suicide. Let's embody Christian love and hope to show a new way forward. Thanks for listening to the segment on suicide. I hope it was helpful. But after such a heavy segment, our next and final segment of this audio magazine offers a bit of humor. In this backtracks segment, let me reach way back to 1995 for a little humor. This material was published in the Christian Ministry magazine in 1985. I was pastoring a church in Amarillo, Texas, at the time. One day, an adventure started. "Do you just want the regular?" asked Gala, the light-hearted stylist who had volunteered to cut the preacher's hair for free. It was time for a haircut. Little did I know that I'd make a decision that would cut a new course for my ministry. Maybe it was the boredom implied in the world. Of, in the word "just." Maybe it was a reaction to my having turned 40 a few months later. Or I could have been inspired by President Clinton, whose tousled locks I saw every night on the news. Whatever its origin, I felt a wild gust of new wind blowing. Before I could stop them, the words burst out of my mouth. i have been thinking about trying something different. Maybe pulling it straight back like some of those younger guys are doing. Gala did not flinch. She did not call the chairman of deacons. She seized the moment and my hair, taking advantage of my impulsive recklessness. Let's try it, she said with a laugh and began to snip. Soon I was caught up in her raucous abandon. We laughed as she styled. A few minutes later, she was done. She blow-dried her masterpiece and applied some hairspray, and suddenly the preacher, for better or worse, had a new do. Aware of every strand on my head, I arrived home wondering what my wife, Jan, would think. As I opened the door, butterflies skirted across my stomach. My wife was talking to a church friend who had come by our house to give some decorated advice. She greeted me with a smile and the usual, "'Hi, honey,' then her gaze left my eyes and traveled upward. Her smile froze, then widened, and she blurted, "'You've changed your hair.' For years, my strawberry red hair has been a conversation piece. Since junior high, I had parted it on the left side and combed it down into the right. It was that way when my first congregation voted to call me eighteen years ago. Remember, this is 1995. Every Sunday since then, God's people have looked expectantly toward the pulpit to hear the word preached from the same coiffure. But now a change had come. A faint part was still visible, but the hair was combed back rather to the side. The blow-drying made it appear layered and soft. I seemed taller and more progressive. Biblical characters, Samson and Paul, had expressed their spiritual and emotional life through their hair. Now my name could be added to the list. I was ready for New Horizons, but I wasn't ready for people's reactions. The tiny weight of a few hairs would quake a Richter scale event at the church. Everyone had an opinion. The decorator who was visiting with my wife when I arrived at home about our interior decorations seemed to approve, but hers was a dubious endorsement. She had been known to take up all the carpet in her house and stain the concrete for decorative effect. My 15-year-old daughter interrupted one of her stream-of-consciousness monologues to say, cool, I like it. Now I was totally confused. She had expressed some similar judgments about rock stars, whose heads are shaved on one side and the other side was green. The psychological impact on these few friends and loved ones was obviously great, and that was a portent of what was to come. The next Sunday, the church was a buzz over the preacher's new do. Many greeted me while giving the upward glance. First a handshake, then the beginning of, "'Hello, brother,' then they would see my hair.' Their stares were so intense, I felt like I was wearing a Viking war helmet with horns, or at least an Abe Lincoln top hat. Finally, they had finished the greeting. Uh, hi, Brother Larry. My very identity seemed to be questioned by their dramatic reactions. During the worship service, the choir, who had seen only the back of my head for the first moments of the service, rippled with reaction when they caught a glimpse of the rest of my haircut. I wondered if anyone in the congregation heard the sermon that morning. I came to learn that my hair was not just my own, and that the dividing line between my private life and public ministry is as thin as the hair on Michael Jordan's head. Brother Larry, are you doing something different with your hair? Some inquired gently. Others were more blunt. Preacher, you sure look different. I began to wonder if my hair would be discussed and voted on in a congregational meeting. The uproar led me to wonder whether a church could split over the fate of split ends. Would the new stylites break off from the old combers and split the church? Maybe it didn't help when I asked my parishioners if they remembered what Samson had done once his hair returned to the fashion before Jezebel got a hold of it. My change in hairdo may have startled some parishioners because they never imagined the preacher in so mundane a setting as a barbershop, even though Providence not only counted every hair on my head, but also saw to its proper length and placement. Over the next weeks, I noticed that my new do opened the door for conversation with church members who usually never said anything to the preacher. I heard a lot of discussion about barbers, cousins who bought Corvettes when they turned 40, and how Mama used a bowl for cutting her family's hair. Even some younger folks brightened as I drifted a little closer to their generation and seemed to be a genuine human being after all. That's the end of my little humor piece from 1995. You can tell that I kept some of the original material in there. Looking from today... I recognize some darker issues in congregational life. It is common yet today for parishioners to feel they own the minister's professional and personal life. Ministers have been fired over the misbehavior of children, who they voted for, their depression or anger, and whether Adam and Eve were real people. All of us back in that day had a laugh over my change in hairstyles. Ultimately, however... The pressures, opinions, and criticism of that toxic fishbowl that is the pastor's family became too much for me. I moved to other areas of ministry. So if you're a church member today, give your minister some space to live and laugh about life. for taking a few minutes to listen to this episode of the Tracks for the Journey audio magazine. If you like what you've heard, share a rating with your podcast provider and send a link to friends. I invite you to go to the tracksforthejourney.com website to find more resources for your faith journey. And I welcome your partnership through Buy Me a Book, where a small contribution can go a long way. You can find the link at the website TracksForthhejourney.com. You can also join the community on Facebook or email me in care of TracksPodcast at Outlook.com. Tracks for the Journey is produced at the Brightstar Studio and hosted by BuzzSprout.com. All rights reserved. Music is provided through epidemic music. I hope you have a great journey.